Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. Joining me in Rich tonight is Jeremy Miles MS. He's a member of the Senate for Neath. He's also the Welsh Government Brexit Minister and Council General. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, Matthew. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for coming on. We wanted to start today's show by just talking very briefly about what your concerns have been with the UK government's interior market bill. Would you be able to summarise that for us? Yes. Well, fundamentally, it's uh, it's uh, you know as a government, we support the idea and principle of an internal market. It's good actually for Welsh consumers and Welsh businesses, and obviously helps with the UK. Uh, you know, economy functioning overall. So we are absolutely supportive of making that work. Our problem with the bill is that it's not remotely needed in order to deliver the internal market. And, you know, it does, it seeks to do that at the expense of the devolution settlements, basically. So, you know, it drives a coach and horses, really, through the ability of the Senedd and Welsh ministers to be able to maintain the high standards that Welsh consumers are, have rightly, obviously, valued. Um, and it is absolutely the case that the lowest standards in any part of the UK in future will be baked into the economy. And um, obviously we have a government in Westminster which is keen on deregulation. So, uh, so the risk is obvious. There's a constitutional argument, which you know, I myself am completely persuaded by. But even if people aren't persuaded by that, this will affect people in terms of their weekly shop, their interest in the environment interested in animal welfare, all sorts of issues really, and it's been done in a way which has involved no consultation with the devolved governments, and we just think that's wrong. What are some of the alternative proposals that you've made to the bill, and, and how would they address the, the problems that you find with the bill as it stands? Well, first thing to say, I guess, is, you know, I met with uh, UK government ministers yesterday, actually, to make the case, because I think it's important to take any opportunity to do that, really. Um, and obviously, some parts of the bill are you know, less problematic, obviously, than others. But the sorts of things that we have been saying we would need the bill to be changed in order for us to, to reflect the kind of proposals we've put forward are as follows, I guess. Firstly, there's nothing in the bill which requires the governments to come together to try and agree uh, standards, to try and agree how there might be a mechanism for variation. And we have them already at the moment. Um, so there's nothing in the bill which uh, provides any space for that to happen, really. Um, you've probably heard about the Common Frameworks programme, which is the kind of four governments negotiating standards and, you know, mechanisms in areas which are currently devolved to reflect the sort of arrangements we have as members of the European Union. And really, our principle is that that should continue to be the main way in which the four governments come together to, to deal with these issues. Now, once you've got a set of mechanisms through the common frameworks, and by the way, they were originally intended by the UK government to cover all those areas which affect the internal market. So that was the original proposal. So once you've got a mechanism through those frameworks, you can then accept a mutual recognition principle because obviously any market requires that. But you're doing that on a basis which has been agreed, basically. Our view is that should be at the heart of the legislation in a way that it isn't. No. Uh, and then the next thing is there are some parts of the bill which actually um, you know, reverse the devolution settlement. So one part of the bill actually extends the number of things in the Government of Wales Act which are reserved to Westminster. It adds to the things which are beyond the reach of the Senate. So we don't, we don't think that's at all acceptable. So we need those things uh, um, reversed, taken out of the bill. And state aid is the, is the, is the obvious example there. There's a whole set of issues around the UK government um, seeking powers to spend in devolved areas. Uh, we've seen today, haven't we, uh, con concerns that people have about the UK government not stepping up to its existing commitments to fund flood 
defence work uh, in Wales, promises it's already made. So our view as a government is, UK government, if it has additional funds to spend in Wales, should either provide them to us as a government in accordance with the existing devolution settlement, or spend it on things which they're currently underfunding, which they're responsible for. We're all really familiar with the uh, issue around the, uh, you know, the breach of international law. Um, so there's absolutely no way the government will recommend to the Senev anything which involves a piece of legislation which is obviously you know, unlawful. It's evident that that bit of the bill is completely unlawful. Um, and so whilst that is in the bill, there's no prospect of that being acceptable, obviously. And I suppose the last um, major issue is, um, and this is a little kind of technical and nerdy really, but the UK government is designating this bill as what's called a protected enactment, which would basically means that under the devolution uh, settlement that the Senate isn't able to legislate in that area, even when it deals with devolved matters. Uh, now, the, the, that gives us a clue, really, actually, about what's intended here, because uh, that is normally only normally um, suggested in relation to significant constitutional legislation. Um, and it's very, very rare that it applies to the whole bill. So, you know, I think that gives you a clue as to what, uh, what's going on here, really. So all of those things would need to be changed. Actually, we are bringing forward amendments, uh, which we hope then can be taken forward, you know, in the House of Lords uh, to deal with all those issues, really. And uh, we are hopeful, you know, we'll obviously be prepared to work with politicians of any party and none in Parliament to get as many of those uh, things changed as we possibly can. The amendments that you've proposed, do they fundamentally flip some of the way that the bill works on its head uh, in order to kind of reverse some of those checks and balances so that they are more even across the United Kingdom governments? Or are they trying to modify the existing model that the bill seeks to follow in its current form? That's a really good question. I mean, the bill currently has a... Just the first thing I should say is we actually don't you know, this legislation isn't necessary, but we do think that some aspects of the internal market need legislation. You know, we've always said that. In fact, that's part of the Common Frameworks programme. All the governments have accepted that. So I suppose what uh, our approach and our amendments do is, as you say, to reverse the order of the process. So rather than start with the sort of nuclear option, if you like, of a mutual recognition principle, which actually provides a disincentive, really, for the UK government to continue talking to us about common frameworks. Why would you, why would you bother devoting energy to that if you had a, a nuclear option in your back pocket of being able to impose standards in your own part of the UK on all the other parts of the UK? It just doesn't make any sense. So we would reverse that effectively and say a mutual recognition principle is the end of the process whereby you've gone through the common framework, you've tried to agree things, you've had, you know, if there's a dispute between the governments, it's mediated, there's a mechanism for that to be resolved. And it's at the end of that process that you then apply the common, the uh, mutual recognition principle, not the start. So as you say, uh, Richard, it sort of reverses, it flips it, if you like. The Welsh government has had some success in persuading different UK governments to change course on the way that their legislation is, is moving. Thinking of the 2015, then 2016 Wales bill, and of course, some significant aspects of the uh, withdrawal bill, which created the common frameworks process that you're talking about there. As things stand, and particularly given the, the timeline that we're working, which is more compressed and perhaps has less flexibility in it than any of those previous examples, how confident are you given the, frankly, the numbers at Westminster, particularly in the House of Commons, but also the kind of 
reception to this bill um, across all of the benches in the Commons and, uh, and, and a kind of mixture of reactions that have come from the Lords? Because almost all of those have focused on the international law precedent, not necessarily much the internal future of the UK. Well, I mean, it is true to say, as you say, that the focus given to the international law aspect and the, you know, the, the breach of, of international law and the domestic law, by the way, in the bill has, you know, has been the principal source of, of focus in Parliament. But I was struck, for example, uh, that Theresa May, you know, herself made a contribution which acknowledged the fact that this was damaging to the devolution settlement as well as the international uh, relations uh, that we need. So I, I absolutely think there's an understanding in Parliament across the parties that there are several challenges in this bill which need to be obviously addressed and we would say you know overhauled effectively. Um, what's my confidence level about succeeding? Well as you say there's a government in Westminster which has which has a significant majority in the Commons. The preparation of this bill was not done on a collaborative basis. So you know these are discussions uh, which ought to have been happening as the UK government was developing a set of proposals so that you know they, they could have been addressed along the way if you like. So I take that point for sure that the, t the time is, is not, the time at the very least is not on our side um, but I fear there are parts of the bill that the UK government will be extremely you know reluctant to move on. I, I should say that our position as a government is always actually to do our utmost to be able to put forward, you know, constructive alternatives and to press the case and to test and press the argument that be, that's being put by the UK government, because that's our role as a, as a government that, you know, would like to have a well and a better functioning union. You know, I have this week had um, a short discussion, must be said, with UK government ministers where I've outlined, you know, in detail really, uh, what are our specific concerns to the bill, about the bill, um, and have you know pressed them to bring forward alternative proposals really so as with all these things some of those discussions are you know more difficult than others and probably at this point it doesn't there isn't much benefit in me going into 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 anything specific because it's a very early stage really but I hope that some of the things we put forward will be taken on board obviously we on Friday have put forward a legislative consent memorandum to the Senate which encourages the Senate not to give its consent, obviously. Um, I'm confident myself, my own view is, that unless the things that we've asked to be addressed are addressed, there is no prospect of the Senate giving its consent to the bill. You know, obviously, we are then in the territory of what happens next, needless to say. We, we obviously know as well the Scottish Parliament is, is obviously very unlikely to give its consent. Yet the Sewell Convention, as we, as we all know, would, would tell us that the UK government wouldn't legislate normally without our consent in the Senate. The last time we withheld our consent, the UK government, the only time in fact this has happened, the UK government proceeded notwithstanding that, which was obviously not very long ago. At that point in time, Michael Gove, Stephen Barclay and others said to us in terms really, these are unique circumstances, they're extraordinary, they're exceptional, um, and so in, you know it's in that context that we're proceeding uh, despite the absence of consent from the Senate. I think myself that um, in those circumstances, and given the scale of the issue of this bill, uh, the UK government would would struggle to justify being able to proceed without um, the consent, consent of the devolved government. Certainly, it shouldn't do that. We're talking about Sewell a bit more. It's only a convention, and it's very hard to it's well, it's impossible to enforce in the courts. What is available to the Welsh government to sort of push back against this act or this bill if it became an act? 
given that it's you know it's legal roots out of it are greatly limited if if non-existent well as you say matthew the, you know once primary legislation is difficult to challenge as it goes through parliament perhaps not entirely impossible but difficult certainly to challenge uh, and you know obviously the, as you say the existence of the civil convention which says that the uk parliament will not normally legislate obviously allows the possibility for the uk parliament to legislate obviously in devolved areas um that's in my view a weakness in the, in the devolution settlement i think it should say that the uk parliament would never legislate in those areas uh, but that, there's obviously a debate around that the practical point then is what happens what, what happens what's our response in wales and scotland and elsewhere well there are already discussions going on about wh whether there's scope for uh, testing some of that in terms of litigation and so on you know as i say in terms of primary legislation that's uh, usually very difficult but the bill obviously depends a lot on making regulations um, and obviously secondary legislation is much more capable of being challenged by judicial review um, and a lot of the bill is implemented in that way so you know it's too early to say at this point because the bill is still going through parliament isn't it but that provides a you know a mechanism by which some of the considerations that ought to be taken into account now might be addressed later on if you like but i mean the other broader political point actually is that if, if the uk government proceeds in the absence of consent if the uk parliament proceeds in the absence of consent in this situation it will just illustrate i think how uh, how fundamental reform is needed of, of sewell really because i think you know the extent the range of concerns about this bill are so extensive uh, that i think it will be absolutely obvious at that point that sewell needs fundamental reform you talk about reforming Sewell, but obviously in the Welsh Government document, Reforming Our Union, we've talked a lot about reforming the constitution yeah. in its entirety. Yeah. Re-envisaging the way that sovereignty works in the UK is a big thing, making it such that each constituent nation of the UK is, is more sovereign than it has been. Do you think that this bill makes the case stronger than most other things have done for that reform? In many ways it does. I mean, my view is very clearly that sovereignty derives from the people rather than from Parliament. So, you know, there's no, in my mind, no political question around that. That debate is, in my mind, settled, you know, but the Constitution doesn't reflect that exactly, unfortunately. But, you know, even if you were to take the parts of the bill that are straightforward, um, the spending powers in devolved areas, the addition of things to the reserved list for devolution purposes, you know, those go against the expressed wishes of people in Wales for those matters to be dealt with by the government um, and the Welsh Senedd, uh, uh, you know, and I think those, so there are kind of head-on conflict in those areas, and I think it just illustrates the point that, you know, the constitution needs clear reform. I want to be really clear, you know, I don't, I, this isn't, this is a constitutional argument, but the reason it's important is because it feeds through very directly to the lived experience of people in Wales. It's not an academic abstract discussion about where powers lie and what referenda mean. It's a very practical set of considerations around, you know, standards in animal welfare, standards in the environment, standards in food safety, things that people in Wales rightly care a lot about. So there's a, there's a definitely there's a clear read across in that way. But we have said as a government that there needs to be a set of arrangements which allows parity of esteem between the four governments and, you know, nothing could be further from that principle than the way this bill was developed and also that there's a mechanism by which intergovernmental relations are put on a much more stable footing so you know what we have now is a uh, you know th th the nature and the appetite of the uk government for engaging with the devolved governments is 
a very significant part of you know the reality of intergovernmental relations so you've probably heard us say previously that even under Theresa May actually um, relations in terms of engagement and um, participation and joint decision making and so so on was better than it is under the, gov gov under the Johnson government so you can't proceed on the basis of those kind of um, preferences if you like in the 21st century in a significant uh, you know established democracy that isn't the way which you can proceed and you need a set of arrangements and mechanisms which can survive you know changes in government can survive changes in personnel and can survive people's you know political preference basically they should be capable of you know weathering the storm depending you know regardless of what's thrown at them if you, if you like and we're very far from that sort of set of arrangements at the moment. And I think you can see a practical example of that in, in the things the First Minister's been talking about um, as a result of COVID, you know, I mean, he's spoken about the need for a regular, reliable rhythm of, of, of engagement. And I think when it comes to something like a public health crisis of that scale, you know, that, that becomes even more important, doesn't it? Because it's, a, you know, there's very practical consequences. Can I just uh, press you a little bit on that, um, on something you said earlier, tying into what you just said about UK government ability to uh, reach into devolved areas as a result of this bill. One of the less clear arguments in the public sphere has been that the UK government is saying that this bill empowers the devolved administrations. And you've said very clearly in your evidence to the Senate and also elsewhere that your view is that it disempowers to a certain degree the Senate as well, and obviously um, Stormont and, and um, Holyrood as well. And you've given some very specific examples. So could you could you clarify this from the Welsh government's understanding of the law of, of the draft bill as it is? Does this bill give more or less power to the Senate and more or less power for Westminster to act in Wales in a way that affects Wales? Well, there is no question at all uh, in my mind that this bill reduces the ability of Welsh ministers and the Senate to operate the current range of devolved powers that um, each of those institutions have. I've asked to be pointed to the section in the to the clause in the bill which people say extends the powers of the Senate. I'm still waiting for an answer. I think the argument runs we're leaving the European Union therefore you know this is the bill that deals with the powers that come back from the European Union. Well the reason that the powers of the Senate and Welsh ministers are to some extent enhanced because you know after leaving the European Union and by the way that isn't a situation that we obviously have advocated just to remind you of that but the reason that they are enhanced to the extent that they are is by virtue of the devolution settlement it's not by virtue of this bill you know there's a world view I think which is these powers come to Westminster and then they're handed out by Westminster well that isn't how devolution works and it isn't how the legislation which we already have works. You know, the competencies in Wales are kind of expanded by virtue of the existing settlement. So there's nothing in this bill which confers those powers on Wales or any other part of the UK. All it does is constrain the way in which powers, by the way, including pre-existing powers, not simply new powers, are, um, are exercised. So on the example for state of state aid, for example, if this bill did not exist and was never passed into an act, state aid powers that have been held up to this point by the European Union, would they come to Wales? Would they come to the Senate? Well, this is a, this is a um, very kind of um, uh, constitutional 
uh, niche area, really. Our view as a government has been these are devolved. The UK government has never accepted that. Uh, the way the devolution settlement works is unless there's an express reservation in the Act, then it's devolved. That's, that's the settlement that we have. We are confident that our analysis is correct, because if it was not correct, the UK government wouldn't feel the need to amend the settlement. So I think that tells you everything you need to know, actually. I think state aid is a very good and frustrating example, really, because actually our view as a government is that we need a UK-wide state aid regime. It doesn't make sense for each part of UK to have its own state aid regime. So, you know, that's, our, that's what we think is the right outcome. But the, uh, fundamentally, you know, the wrong way of going about that is to preserve those powers freshly, if you like, to Westminster. They should be where they already are, which is devolved in our view, and then those arrangements can be negotiated on a four-nations basis. That's the right way to go. This particular UK government seems quite happy to pick fights with people with whom it either disagrees with uh, substantively or just doesn't like. And we've seen this with sectors of different economies. We've seen this with the European Union very clearly. They've been not been shy at all about indicating their unwillingness to play by the accepted rules. And that seems to apply to a certain degree with the devolved uh, governments as well and devolved parliaments. How do you then go forward and try and be constructive? Because the Welsh Government is the one government outside of England which has tried to be actively constructive in, or the most actively constructive, trying to fix these things. How can you work in good faith with a government that has shown repeatedly that it is not so inclined to working necessarily in good faith with, with other um, sectors or, or governments? Well, I mean, I try not to speculate about motivation because I just don't, it's just hard to know, isn't it, really? But uh, what, I th what I can tell you is the effect, certainly. So just the first thing to say is it's, you know, this bill represents a new low, but it's a very uneven picture. So there are examples of much better joint working between the government. So, for example, in relation to the international trade negotiations, which don't involve the EU, so third country negotiations, I think if you were speaking to Lynette Morgan about that, she would say to you, actually, there have been a number of very good examples where joint working in that space has been pretty positive, actually, to be fair. So that is, that is obviously a thing that we welcome. Latterly, certainly, um, in relation to preparing for the end of the transition period, there has been an improvement in engagement. I would say it's from a, you know, from a lower start than we would have wanted and later point in time than we should have had but you know it has got better and the truth is actually last year uh, when we were preparing for leaving the European Union without any sort of deal by the end of that I would say there was a very there was a good way of working actually on, on most areas um, in terms of the preparation that's the operational you know delivery aspect isn't it it's when you come to the questions of policy uh, where there's a difference of opinion between the government so you know a very good example of that would be the uh, EU exit negotiations for example you know in that space despite the uh, efforts that we have put in as a government to take any opportunity frankly to make the case we have not had the voice that I think people in Wales would have expected us to have and yet at the same time there's a set of discussions going on to recast intergovernmental relations, the intergovernmental relations review, which you might have heard mentioned. And actually there's some there's some progress in some of those areas. Now, you know, they haven't been signed off and they haven't been approved officially. So I don't want to overplay that because 
uh, there's many a step twixt cup and lip, as they say, but um, but there there are, you know there are signs of progress if I can put it like that, um, and so that's why it's a, but continuing to make progress under the shadow of the internal market bill is obviously a challenge for obvious reasons, but it's it's an uneven picture, and I think what that tells you is it makes the point I was making earlier really, it shouldn't depend on uh, you know which portfolio ministers are more you know have a better relationship or which areas of government have a longer standing set of relationships. It shouldn't depend on any of that. These should be defensible, robust arrangements which exist through the political cycles, if you like. Given there is a strong likelihood that this bill will pass into an act on a very quick timeline and ahead of those May elections next year, should they go ahead on their current timeline, is there a risk that if the UK government wished to use some of the new powers that would be given it through this act, that actually that might have an influence on those elections next year. Well, uh, you know, they would have they would have done something to the devolution settlement that the previous governments haven't done, which is either to reverse parts of it or circumvent parts of it. So, I think voters in Wales who are interested in continuing to have governments in Wales exercising devolved powers will look at a Conservative government doing that and should form the clear view. Uh, you know that can, that uh, uh, that's obvious as a result of that about which parties are committed to devolution in Wales and which are not. Um, so you know it may have that consequence, but I think you know what it will have been clear. What will be clear if that bill becomes uh, an act is that the case that we've made as a government for significant reform of the of the UK's constitution actually, but in particular as it relates to Wales from our point of view, um, will have become that much um, that much more powerful. I think. One more question before you go, Jeremy. If this bill becomes an act and becomes law, what do you think the State of the Union will be like after the elections in May next year? Look, I think I, I think the one of the strongest interventions in this space has been that from David Melding, actually, because you know he speaks as a conservative about the actions of a conservative government. And I don't want to 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 mix things up for him, as it were, to muddy the waters. But the truth is, he is right when he says that a unionist government in Westminster, which cared genuinely about the well-functioning of uh, the good functioning of the union to the future, wouldn't proceed on the basis that this one has. You know, as a government, we want the union to work and to work better than it is working. There's certainly plenty of scope for that to improve. I do fear, though, that if we end up with a UK government, which is seeking to exercise spending powers in devolved areas that people in Wales have elected a government to do, you know, and a fresh government will be constituted in the new Senate term. We don't know what that'll be, but there'll be a new government with a mandate and it'll have mandate in education and in health and in housing. All of those areas are areas where the UK government is seeking direct powers to finance. So I think, you know, that, that is why we are so concerned, really. And it is an unnecessary, uh, you know, it's an unnecessary step for the UK government to take. We've put forward, you know, because, because we want the union to work uh, and to function better than it does we put forward what we think are a set of you know very workable constructive alternatives which frankly um, respect the devolution boundaries and deliver the same uh, outcomes of a well-functioning market across the UK. Uh, I, I hope the UK government decide at some point that they um, need to engage with that. Emily Miles thank you very much for coming on. Talk to us. Thank you. If you like what you heard tonight, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Heroic Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Heroic Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Heroic Blog. Thank you for listening to Heroic. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.